I don't know what has startled you, but there are many a woman in this church who have greeted me in the kitchen with a loud voice, and I didn't know they were in the church, and I was washing dishes at the sink, and they peel me off the ceiling because they come in and they say, Hi, Pastor Jim! And... um, uh, it just startles me, and it's been happening almost weekly, like, like this. And uh, they say, oh, I didn't mean to you know, cause you fear, and usually women don't fear me. You know, I'm not afraid of women. <laughs> but it's that loud voice. Now, you need to know this. If Barb was doing the same thing, and a woman came in with a loud voice, Barb's my wife, for those of you who are new, she would turn around and just do it louder. Why? <laughs> and the voices would go up. However, are you in the room, Barb? Good. Uh, I think she's teaching. Um, However, if a two-inch rodent walks in front of her in our house, she, she just suddenly is so startled that she has to run away, ask me to please help it. It's all yours, Jim. Please do it. It's funny how a loud voice... A little rodent. Let me give you one other thing. This might just be me. But several years ago, I was asked to come look at a very expensive sports car with an Italian name. And the sports car would probably cost new more than my house. We're talking a half million dollars for this sports car. And uh, I remember approaching it with somewhat fear and trembling because... I didn't have a half million on me to pay for it. More than that, I know this phrase that I picked up, you break it, you bought it. So I was checking the back button of my pocket because as I sat down on the rich Corinthian leather of these seats, that something terrible might happen. I might scratch it and suddenly I'm writing a bounce check for about a half a million dollars. We're talking about a series where we're looking at the normal fears. And I want you to know that many fears are, you might say, God's uh, hardwiring of us to protect ourselves. And it's okay. The issue is whether they control us. The issue is whether what God says he will do for us instead of those fears are what we trust in. So as we're doing this series, I've got to take you to the next and the final of this series because we've looked at uh, fear of rejection. We've looked at fear of failure. We've looked at fear of financial collapse. I don't remember all of them, but this is the eighth uh, of eight that I will be doing. And, and today I have to ask this question. When I say, do you fear God? How would you answer that? What about a fear of God? I've been listening to many of the stories of the people who come to worship here, and they will many times, when this idea of the fear of God comes up, they will admit that they have a sort of a distorted view, a distorted view that they got his children or something like that, and, 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 and they believe that God is out to get me, so therefore I will remain moral. Because if I don't, there'll be judgment, punishment, and maybe even eternal damnation. But I want to say this on the other side. Many of us have made the, state, made the mistake of saying, I don't fear God. He's my buddy. He's just like another friend. 
And, and it's like the pendulum has shifted one way, uh, shifted one way or the other, and we don't really know where it should land. Take the pendulum, throw it out, and understand that what we are looking at today is how do we rightly fear God? Do you realize that in the Bible, where many people have counted the times that it says, fear not, don't be afraid, or things like this? More times it says, fear God. More times it says, have a right understanding of him so you will have a proper fear of who God is and how you're to uh, approach him. Uh, God is not the genie from the lamp who comes along to fulfill all your wishes, not just three. He's not just your buddy. Nor is he one that you, you would say, if I do anything wrong, it's curtains, it's over. So, Last week, those of you who were here, on Easter we were looking at the universal fear of death. And, and we understood that Walter Payton, before he died, and he was talking to another running back, said, of course I'm afraid. I've never died before. Because he died in his 40s. And, and so as we've gone through all of these fears, we, we understand that God steps in and he says, they're not it's okay to be initially frightened, but they're not there to take charge of your life. And yet, what is it like to fear God properly? In the fantasy uh, series by C.S. Lewis, the Chronicles of Narnia, one of them is called the Silver Chair. And Jesus is portrayed as a lion named Aslan, who is both fierce and regal. But he's also a very loving being. And Aslan, at this point, is standing between a very thirsty girl named Jill and a river where Jill can get her thirst quenched. And he's standing there, and this is how the conversation goes. Aslan, if you are thirsty, you may drink. Jill, will you promise not to, to do anything to me if I do come? Aslan, I make no promise. Jill, then I dare not come and drink. Then you will die of thirst. Jill, I'll find another stream. Aslan, there is no other stream. There she is facing God, portrayed as a lion. And she hears, it's me or nothing. How do we face the fear of fearing God, or do we say, I'm past that, I'm over that? How do we understand that so often you cannot read a psalm, you cannot read a proverb, you cannot read many parts of scripture without it saying, fear God. And like Jill, we see God as a powerful and, and uh, powerful being, and he's causing terror within our souls. So he forces us to make hard choices in life. And, and he may do anything to anyone at any time. To fear God uh, as he should be feared. It means that we need an accurate understanding of who God is. And, 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 and we also need this, uh, this understanding of we have a God who has chosen to reveal himself to us in the Bible. As who he really is, not who we learned as a child. And we have to understand who God is and who he's not because often we're walking around with these, with these distorted ideas of who he's not. 
And if you are like most people, your fear of God will be based on past experiences with people that you know, not past experiences of God. We use this Venn diagram here, and it's called uh, our transformation model. We believe that God transforms people. And, and when we're looking at how is this message going to be used to possibly transform us, look at that top circle. The idea here is that we're going to be going deeper with God this morning to understand that the knowledge and experience that he wants us to have will allow us to throw away these misconceptions and instead embrace him for who he really is. And we do this by exploring the book that he has given us and we discover what fearing God is and what is not. So I want to be honest with you. Fearing God, for those of you who are saying, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to be burned up. It's in there. It's not, you know, you, you haven't misread it. It's in there. And what does it say about that? What are the two ways of fear that keep coming through in Scripture? The first is like this idea of dread. Uh Awesome dread. It's the, it's the fear of this perfect and holy person that we call God the Father. And that when we are in his presence, the great characters of the Bible along with us, we will find that they fall to their knees before him and lay their face down. You see, this is true of Abraham, Moses, Joshua, Gideon, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and Paul. And that's a good group. I love those guys. And that's how they respond. At one point or another, they are all stricken with fear and awe. And the difference between each of them and God is that they recognize that in the presence of a holy God, each of them is less than holy compared to God. And each of them deserves death by consuming fire, just being near God, just God showing up. Here we're looking at the issue of holiness or morality. There is a moral distance between humanity and and God, between us and him. God is perfect. He never sins. And he tells his people this, you shall be holy just as I am holy, or another way is you shall be morally perfect just as I am morally perfect. Now, one of these, I mean, as I say this, can I just use one of the great... uh, uh, accounts of, of one of the Gospels where in, instead of being serious, it's really almost funny. You see, Peter has been uh, uh, fishing all night because that's when they fish, I guess, on, on the Sea of Galilee. And he and his companions have been fishing all night and they caught nothing. Now, I'm told that's being skunked when I fly fish. Now, I've never been skunked fly fishing. Actually, I've been skunked way too many times. Um, but they've had it. And instead of cleaning fish, you know what they're cleaning? Their nets. They're getting their nets ready for the rest of, you know, the next time that they go out. So here's, uh, here's Peter and Jesus comes up to him. Uh, he knows it's been a bad day. Uh, he's been using, uh, 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 Peter's boat to speak from. And he goes, look, the day's over. I'm done with my teaching. Go out one more time and throw over your net. And Peter goes, he's just too frustrated. I don't want to do this. But he says, well, because you ask, I'll go do it. He throws the net over, and lo and behold, it almost capsizes the boat with the catch that they get. That's funny. 
You're not laughing yet, but it's funny. But Peter then says this. He looks at God, falls to, I mean, look at, looks at Jesus and falls to his knees and he says, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. In other words, he has the feeling at this time, this dread that he is in the presence of someone who is so powerful, so right in his knowledge and, and so holy in his morality that he does not deserve to be around him. In fact, he's in danger by being around Jesus. And the first thing that comes up to him is, I'm a sinful man. Do you use those words lately? I loved it when one of the, when the current pope, that was one of the first things he said. What should we call you? He says, well, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. Peter used it. He turned out okay. How do you confess your sins to God? I'm a sinful man. My moral behavior proves that there is not enough of God in me. I deserve the punishment for my acts. But I give thanks to God for my forgiveness also. So there's that dread. But then the next thing we look at is what I would call devotion. Unmitigated devotion to God. And, and this is expressed in Philippians where, um, where, where Paul is writing to this Roman colony in Philippi. Uh, sort of in the Macedonian coast. And as he writes them, he writes this. These young Christians, Christians for probably less than, than a decade, continue to work out your salvation with fear. With fear and trembling. Why? Because if I fail, that's it? I'm toast? No. With fear because it is God who works in you both to will and to act according to his good pleasure. With fear because God is involved. That's an idea of not, you're gonna get, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna get clobbered if you don't. But this is what we normally do. We know that God's at work and we have this holy fear of him and that he is the one doing the work in us. Fear and trembling, we're not in terror, but you might say we're overwhelmed. With the knowledge that God has chosen to do his work in each of us. So that we might become more like Jesus. Fear here means seriously taking the awesome responsibility of living for Jesus. And the awesome privilege of having God live in us through his spirit. There's another great instance where this comes about. In Exodus chapter 33, Moses is in a conversation with God. And this is one of those conversations where Moses is saying to, uh, I mean, where God is saying to Moses, now look, we're right there. We're, we're ready to go over. So I want you to go over. But God doesn't say he's going to go with them. And so Moses starts to plead, Lord, this job's too big for me. Two million people, one leader. I can't do it. If you don't go, I don't want to go. In fact, if you don't go, I know I can't do it if you don't go with us. Well, that sort of, it, I don't mean that it changes God's minds, but it puts, puts Moses in this uh, humble position of leadership saying, I can't do it on my own. So God says, well, okay, I will go with you. You will not do this alone. And then Moses asked for one more thing. This is a classic, friends. Exodus chapter 33. 
He just says, and by the way, show me your glory. If you're going to, you know, you've already answered this one. I have one more thing I'd like you to do before I die. I'd like to see you. This is that sort of devotion. The better I know you, the better I'll work for you. And what does God do? God says, look, the rules are the same. If you see me, you'll die. There's no way around this. The rules are the same for you, Moses, as great as a leader and as great as a godly man you are. The rules are the same for you as they are for me. You sin, every Hebrew sins, every human sins. If you see me, you will die. So here's what God says. I'm going to put you in a crack in a rock. And I'm going to hide my glory from you as I pass by. Because, he says, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. Now, I realize that we're putting this into very human terms. It's the only way that we will really understand it. But what he's saying is, I am more magnificent than any words that that you may say. I am greater than any conception you may have of me. And if you do see me, it is the end. You know you're in heaven and life is over. So here the issue is not God's holiness or God's morality, but transcendent glory. Um, One of the great theologians of our time is Steven Spielberg. You didn't know that, did you? Well, at least in his first movie... Of Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. He, he did some good theology there. You see, the Nazis take possession of the Ark of the Covenant and, and they take, uh, uh, they take possession of it because they want to use the power that they know is involved. Can you imagine the Nazis saying, we want something from the Jews? Uh, it, there's a little humor there, not much, okay? So, so they, they, they take it. And and they take it to a very special place, and there they're going to unveil it. They're going to open it. And and, and that's exactly what they do. Uh, Indiana Jones and his girlfriend are all tied up, so so there's nothing they can do to stop them. But as they open it, uh, understand that much like Moses, to see God's glory come out of, uh, of that ark, Uh, that belongs in the holiest of holy places. To see that means that everyone will burn up and there are some special effects there that you probably all remember from way back in the 70s, 80s, something like that. And as you saw it, you went, oh my gosh. At least as I saw it, I go, it could have happened that way. There they were, faced with God's glory, and they just eviscerated Indiana Jones says to his girlfriend, close your eyes and keep them closed no matter what. And they're the only two that live. That's a movie. I've got to say this. All week I was uneasy as I was doing this study. And I want to say why. Do you ever think that when you think about and try to explain, describe, absorb even into your mind and heart really big ideas that maybe you shouldn't even be there? That maybe this is above your pay grade, in fact, above any human's pay grade? 
Do you ever think that even though you've done some theology in your life and you've, you know, you've studied some books and you've done all, you know, gathered all your resources, that still you have a problem? And the problem is here, here, and here. Nor does any human language have the vocabulary to describe the glory of God. All the resources I use, I even got out of thesaurus, okay, and looked at, okay, what are some other synonyms that we might use so that I could better do it? And I, you know, I finally put it down. I go, I know. I know what I'm going to say. I'm not worthy. I can't do this well. And I hope you share those feelings with me. That all of human language falls short of describing God's heavenly glory. But at least he tells us why we should fear. That even though it is more than we can absorb, more than we can explain, uh, more than we can uh, comprehend, at least he tells us here in the Bible are some reasons why. So let me give you the three becauses. The first because is who God is. Jeremiah, as he thinks about God in chapter 10, verse uh, 6 and 7, he says, No one is like you, O Lord. You are great and your name is mighty in power. Who should not revere you, O king of the nations? This is your due among all the wise men of the nations and all their kingdoms. There is no one like you. No human can compare to you. No no other gods that people have shaped uh, images of. They're just not good enough. God is greater and our souls know it than the greatest parts of our imagination. And we fear God because... Every bit of input we have makes him different and makes him greater than we are because of what he's done. Just think of the limits of science and the fact that they can't understand how we got matter in the first place, how we got the universe in the matter, you know, how it just, however it got out there. They can't describe how a living cell came to being and why we have a consciousness. And I don't think they'll ever know that. But we say we had a creator who did it all. So, who God is. And it's okay to use the word awesome when you say who God is. The next thing is what God has done. Why do we fear God? Because we look and we understand what he has done. I I understand that, you know, he has created a world, and in a world in which this species, we as humans, are able to pretty much rule it, and we can survive and thrive and continue to to expand and, and grow in numbers as he has commanded us to do. But in the Old Testament, we also realize that the parting of the Red Sea saved his people, and and his people will always look back to the Red Sea, and they crossed on dry land. In the New Testament, we understand that he sends his son to absorb upon himself the penalty of the sins. And we, in a spiritual way, like the Jews, uh, in the physical way, we are saved also from the penalty of our sins. And that is what God has done in the New Testament. And he's raised them. And he's took, taken him back into heaven. And more than that, he's going to bring him back at the proper time. That's what God has done and what he has promised. And so his promise to return is just another promise because he's kept all the others. And we are trusting in that. And the final thing is what God is doing. We, we fear God because we are aware of what God is doing now. 
the work that he's doing within the Christians. It says here in Philippians 1.6, We are confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And here's, here's what you got. I'm going to shorten that. God's not giving up on you no matter what you've done. If he has come into you, he's going to stay. And you may not like it. And you may try to get rid of him. He's got you. And he's staying. And that's what he's doing today. What is he doing? We understand that we're looking at all sorts of things offered by our culture. You know, I can have wider teeth and six-pack abs, and, and, and I can do makeup so that uh, my birthmarks are missing. Uh, I can continue. I, I can start to collect precious metals so that when the, uh, the whole economy fails, I'll be sitting pretty. The bag of gold won't buy a loaf of bread. But you'll have a bag of gold, Okay. And we keep thinking, okay, what is it in the human world that we are so attracted to? What are the DVDs we can order that will make us more fit for this life? Why fear God? We fear God because he as lovingly involves himself in our messy lives. And he shamelessly tells us that his love will not be shaken. That's what he's doing today. How do you get into that because? How do you make it so much a part of you that you say um, when other people around you are disinterested, disoriented, disillusioned, just don't really want to talk about anything eternal or anything greater than themselves? What is it? that God has given us that tells us the ways in which he will be working in us. This is what I call the wisdom of fear. Uh, By that I mean putting it down to ways that are maybe different than the world, but God's ways that work. Because he said his ways are different than our ways, and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So when we talk about the fear of God, this is the only fear that we have looked at that's supposed to increase while all the others are supposed to decrease. Five years from now, it's not that we are less afraid of financial collapse or more afraid of financial collapse. Five years from now, what counts is do we fear God more than we do now? Is our awe, respect, devotion, and dread of him growing and increasing? Because that is what he wants. This is the wisdom of fear, because fear is supposed to be surging as we become more familiar uh, with God's grace in our lives and his greatness. Uh, Right now, I'm in the book of Deuteronomy. Some of you look at this Bible like you look at my car and you laugh. Okay, so as you look at this Bible, you say, when are you going to give it up and get a new one? I said, when this one doesn't work anymore. It's got five layers of uh, duct tape, but also... Uh, as I am looking pretty much day by day into it and trying to get through it every year, as I look into it, most of my notes in there are telling me about who God is. Things that I have to go back to time and time again because I can't remember what I wrote the next day. 
I've got six or seven colors of underlinings and a lot of notes that are so small only I can read. And sometimes I go back and I don't know if I was drunk. I wasn't drunk, okay? Maybe really tired, but whatever it was, I can't even read my notes from the previous day. But as I go back and I look at it continually, I realize I want to be praising God for who he is. Not in great fear of him, but praising God and thanking him. And and you see what Psalm 112 tells us through his word? Because the word of God is part of the wisdom of God that helps us become more like Jesus Christ and, and take on the holiness that God has promised us. So the word of God tells us that there's two ways to look at this, this fear of the Lord. It says this, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, comma, meaning I'm going to say the same thing a different way, who delights greatly in his commands. A person who delights in God's commands, the words delights, not memorize, uh, it's a heart term. The, the person who delights enough to, to, to want to do it and, and set his life about to doing it, uh, that is a person who is showing the wisdom of God, displaying the fear of God by what you do with his word. And the second one is this work of God that we're looking at. Uh, Understand that God has been at work and he gives us examples of how to be aware of his work. And one of the great ones was uh, after the crossing of the Red Sea, the Jews about 40 years later also crossed the River Jordan. Now, the Red Sea versus the River Jordan, eh, sort of like this, okay? Not as weighty, just a river, but it was at least in flood time. But as they were crossing, God did a miracle in that the river dried up and the whole, uh, we, we believe it's somewhere between 1.2 and 2 million people crossed over with all their animals and, and they crossed on dry ground. But while they were crossing, Joshua gives this a, a command. He goes, now, get one leader from each of the 12 tribes. I want you to go back and I want each of you to pick up a big stone, a, a stone that's at least... Uh, hard to carry, not 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 a pebble, but a stone. And then I want all 12 stones to be put into a pile. Because in about 40 years from now, this is what's going to happen. Some people are going to come across this pile and they won't know because you won't have told them what happened. And because they won't know, they're going to say, what are these stones for? And you're going to, oh my gosh, I forgot to tell you. God did a miracle here. And we're on this side of the Jordan Because of the work that he did. And that's what they're to repeat to one another and continually. But you know how much we forget that sort of stuff. The idea is the work of God results in a piles of memorial stones that we will be telling to the next generation explaining what happened. Can I just share something that's going on right now? And this will take a minute or two, but... Uh, something that's going on right now at Bergen Park Church is going to be a memorial for me. Maybe not for you, but, but believe me, because I'm right in the middle of it, it's a memorial for me. About four weeks ago, I was in Ephesians and was talking about uh, grace and that uh, we could never earn or deserve grace. And I, I mentioned that phrase that's so common in the American church today that eventually we just don't understand, but we cross a line of faith. And place our trust in Jesus Christ and the grace that he offers us. And I ask people, are, where are you? Have you crossed the line of faith or, you know, where are you? And since that time, I've had a fairly large number of men come to me, or I go to them, uh, come to me and just say, 
phrases like this. I'm towing the line of faith. Or another one said, I haven't crossed, but I'm crossing the line of faith. More than any other time that I can remember in 40-plus years of ministry. More. And as I'm talking to them, I realize that they've come from a background where, and this is common for many of you, you know, they, they went to church as children, and when they got old enough to not go, they decided, I'm not going. Uh, then they went to college, and they were certain they were never going, okay? And so their spiritual lives took it, and they became very, uh, you might say, materialistic. And, and so they, they, they dropped down there, and suddenly here they are, uh, they're getting married, they're having children, and they're coming up with, I don't have all the answers. I don't know what to tell my kids. What do I do? It is a great time to be here at Bergen Park Church because there are more and more people asking that question. Look, the the community has looked at our building and here's what I here's what I've I hear it weekly. How could you afford that building? I said, well, you know, we're still paying for it. Don't, don't worry. Uh, it wasn't a class seven miracle, but it was an act of faith. And, and God has provided large amounts of money to help pay for it. But that's not the memorial stone. Peter says this, that he, God is putting together what he calls living stones into his church. It has nothing to do with the building. It has to do with each person sitting around here. And he wants you to become a living stone. So he's putting together a building he calls his church. Not the building of the church, but the people of the church. And he's doing that one by one in ways I have rarely seen. Why? Let me take you back to that same conversation we had. The same conversation between Aslan and Jill. I'm going to read it one more time. This says why. If you are thirsty, you may drink. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I come? I make no promise then I dare not come and drink. Then you will die of thirst. I will find another stream. There is no other stream. Let's pray. Almighty God, first of all, I've been on holy ground that I don't deserve to be on. And I think we both know that. But I thank you. And I now really believe that there are many among us who say, Father, I want to live and grow in that healthy fear. The fear that is a certain knowledge that you exist and that you are great and mighty and beyond all limitations of my mind. And you are seeking me through sending your son Jesus to this planet. And right now, whether I've crossed the line or thinking about it or towing it or crossing it, it doesn't matter. But right now you're speaking to me of where I am and what the rest of my life holds before me. And I want to settle this. 
now and forever. And Father, I know many of us have crossed the line and we look back and many, many memorials. And we thank you because it is true. You are at work. In the whole global sphere, you are at work in great ways, but also in our lives. And we give you thanks and praise for that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen.